good people of Los Angeles and those with your books open and following along. This is another episode of the FCFC podcast, book club edition number three, but the first that we're actually releasing to the general public. Uh, we, the FCFC universe, started a book club a little while back. Shout out to Edgar. And we've been through Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me. We read as well The Plight of the Black Athlete. And now we are reading Kathy Park Hong's Minor Feelings, an excellent, excellent book. Uh, it's five of us get on here, AC, Edgar, Slim, Josh, and I uh, on our various Zoom tiny screens. This one's not in the backyard. Uh, and we just get into the many, many excellent and interesting avenues that uh, this book allows for. The way that she wrote it was um, such that she covers a lot of ground and she's an excellent writer. I think I speak for all of us when I say we couldn't recommend you read it more. Josh Bice even promised to buy whichever person first hits him up from the FCFC this, uh, listening to this, buy a copy of the book so you can check it out. That's how highly we recommend it. And, uh, you know, if this, if this book isn't up your alley or you're too late in the game and you want to read the next one, we're doing Bobby Hundreds. This is not a t-shirt uh, for the next FCFC book club. But uh, Slim, do you want to hit him with the warning? Ladies and gentlemen, we're all at home. We all have pets and stuff, so you might hear some pet noises. Um, but today's a little different. We're talking about a book, and we still cuss a lot. So if you're at work or around children where you shouldn't be listening to profanity, it's probably a good time to stop listening. Read a book and educate yourself, you dumb motherfuckers. Get uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable. Your penis. FCFC. Welcome to the FCFC pod, where two scholars and a dickhead look at the world through a black and gold tinted lens. It's Butt Club Day! We have our usual suspects, Josh Spice sitting in his living room. Hey! (laughs) We got Big Dweez chilling in the art room of his homies pad in Utah. Just got done walking in the snow. Goddamn that motherfucking cold. Just got done walking in the snow. Goddamn that motherfucking cold. Scrap. And some usual but not always here suspects. We got Edgar Garibay. Get that shit right, boy. Just, yeah, res- just some case. respect on my name. I literally almost respect fucked on it his up name. Garibay, motherfuckers. Was good. Fuck the bay. No, no <laughs> bays in this name. <laughs> and we have the art 
director of FCFC, Mr. AC Noho, Yo, on the Zoom tonight. I'm about to put that shit on my LinkedIn, dog. That's an honor right there. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, it's book club. Like I said, uh, if you guys do follow us, um, then you know that this month's book is Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Kong, an and, Asian American reckoning. And before we get into this book, I just want to say real quick, Edgar and I would like to welcome you guys to book club uh, as this is the third book club meeting uh, of FCFC's <laughs> book club. And it's Josh, Slim, and AC's first appearances. So we're <laughs> glad to have them. We're glad to know that they can still read and they can also listen to the books when preferred. Whatever people want to do. Edgar, is there anything you want to say to welcome them properly to the book club, which was always... Uh, actually, I, I'm still a guest in the book club. Edgar was the, the brain behind the book club. So just, you know, any words you want to give these new inductees to the book club universe? About damn time, Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah, I had to. I had to get the Audible account so I could join these. You know what I mean? <laughs> these book schnobs, bro. Damn, dude. No, no, no. Yeah, I just want to say, I don't like paper cuts. You know, between between the world and me, between the world and me was our first book. Then we read Revolt of the Black Athlete. Now we're on to Minor Feelings. All these books. Uh, you can find it at the FCFC bookstore. Just kidding. We don't really have a bookstore. But that will be I amazing wish. when we do. That's coming. Speaking into existence. Someday. Yeah. Damn, we're um, just like popping up with new ideas every fucking week now, huh? Yeah. Look at us, Look at us making that money and making them on <laughs> <laughs> But Josh, when we, when we picked this book, uh, Minor Feelings, which was also ed- edited by... Uh, it's a new world or a one world, same publisher as Ta-Nehisi Coates book, actually. Oh, um, and uh, when we picked it, you got really excited and you're like, Kathy Park Hong, woo! Like you got really, you got really jazzed. So you were already sort of like up to speed with her and her work. And then maybe let's, let's let you kind of like talk about like your knowledge of her beforehand and then let's dive into the book. Yeah. Um... Okay, it's, so I found out about Kathy Parkham through Twitter, and um, it's it was a weird kind of uh, a reckoning, I think, in as as Kathy would say. But it's just like, man, growing up there was so little Asian American literature, um, artists, creatives, and so like you know I would be looking up the IMDb pages of like you know extra number four in like Star Wars, right? To see like just a glimpse of somebody, right, who was Asian, and be like, holy fuck, there's actually like some kind of representation there. And so when Twitter really started popping off for me, like in college and, and beyond, like I just started, you know, group following every Asian face I could see who like wrote for the Times or, you know, wrote journals and, and, and was a part of a creative journey. And through that, now I have this kind of crazy, like, um, you know, Rolodex following of like Asian American creatives that I'm like, holy shit, there's more of us than I've ever thought it was possible, you know, in this country. And um, at the same time, like, I feel like no one has really written, um, the kind of definitive like Asian American book because we're, I mean, the culture itself is so like amorphous and changing all the time. And we all, you know, represent so many different cultures and languages. But um, this book was such, uh, I said this about Chang Ray Lee's book, Native Speaker as well, which is fiction. But when you go from nobody talking about you to somebody who innately knows your experience so much, it feels like open heart surgery, you know? Like it feels like that um, someone is looking into kind of your soul, your heart. And then like, 
writing about it inside your head, right? And so it's uh, it's a profoundly important book to me. I'm so happy that we're discussing it. A big part of the book um, is about the discomfort that Asians feel about being able to tell their own story in their country um, to people who are, not, who are not Asian. I think some of that comes from people who are, you know, some of that comes from our background. But at the same time, I think uh, they talk a lot about Kathy Parkong talks a lot about um, growing up within the black and white um, kind of uh, juxtaposition in America and where does everybody else fit into this narrative. And so for um, Edgar and Dweez, for you to bring this book up yourself, to bring it up was such a, you know, I already knew you guys were cool, but I really felt like touched and honored honored by that shit. That, so. that was all Dweez. I don't want to take any credit for this recommendation. Well, that Dweez, was all Dweez. Yes, the Dweez. Thank you for that. But it could have been, I mean, but let's be real. It could have been any of us. And that's what's, what's oh exciting. Look at you cool. being Asian and deflecting the praise right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like, you know, we all have like enough divergent interests. And just like Edgar, you know, he was suggested Revolt of the Black Athlete, which like Slim, Slim, I should say, he wasn't a complete, he's not a complete newbie to the book because he did pop on for the discussion for that one. And like, you know, that book was printed, I think, in like 1967 um, or 68. And it was just like, uh, you know, it wasn't something I would have found on my own either. And so like, you know, we are we are in a time where we have like peak options for television, for books, for music, for anything. And there are like really amazing stories and pieces of art and pieces of um and stories out there uh sometimes they take a little digging and sometimes they don't but they could come from anywhere from a twitter feed to like and you know i think marcus from lafc you know might have helped recommend the book or you know i think edgar saw something something with marcus had recommended it but um for this one it, it was a book that i had because i i'm working on a book um about a chinese american right now and it was part of like these you know i follow lots of different avenues and everyone knows I think I follow China really closely and so and obviously like you know I'm just on the lookout for good books and um, One World the publisher that published this they don't publish bad books like they they also published How to Be an Anti-Racist I believe um, and they're as she as Kathy Park Hong says it's like a place where um, writers of color can feel at home uh, this this uh, imprint so you know just like if you grew up loving a record label that kept putting out bangers after bangers, um, it's the same for certain publishers and certain editors. Like you love a producer who, you know, makes a certain type of beats or you love, uh, you know, and a label, again, a label who puts things out. It's the same as publishers and editors. Like these people get their hands on good projects. And that's another way to find books that you like is just look at who's editing them and look at who the publisher was. And then you can you can sometimes help find good books that way, as well as like all the other ways. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, that's that's how we kind of we kind of came upon this one. And um, take it. I mean, Josh, take it away. I want to hear about I want to hear about what it was like to have your open heart surgery as a guy who had open heart surgery. Pew, 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 pew. I want to know what it felt like to have your, you know, your chest ripped open in that way and and how much this this book spoke to you and in what ways and I'll, I, I want to hear what everybody thinks, but um, you had like a lot of notes and stuff. So. Yeah. So I usually read before bed, but this one, um, this one is something that I don't think you should really read before bed. Cause you'll, you know, you'll be up with the, 
the trauma of the generational pain that we've suffered, you know, in this country and beyond. Um, but it's interesting to me because I, you know, I was reading like an Asian American history, uh, the making of Asian America, I have it next to me as well. Um, and I had a similar feeling when I was reading about the history of Asian immigrants in this country. And it was just a profound sadness, you know, and um, I appreciated the, the will to survive, but the, the, the trauma and, the, and the, the desperation and the misery that comes along with survival in this country uh, for people of color is really, um, it's something that, you know, that kept me up and that, that really uh, made me think about it. Kathy Park Hong talks a lot about, um, it's, she talks a lot about just how uh, the trauma sells, right? That trauma for, uh, especially a white author is, you know, is, is lauded, is, um, is, is, is looked at as um, really emotion, as emotional depth, you know, and fully formed characters. But I think there is a kind of a stigma for Asian folk that going into your trauma is um, somehow shameful to your family and somehow shameful to your history. And um, in it, she really rejects this idea and fights with it, but it eventually ends up rejecting the idea because she's like, I need to process this as a way for our, our people to move forward. And I think a good way to start off this discussion, Kathy Park Hong is, you know, a Korean American woman from Koreatown, you know, and I think that's, that holds so much immeasurable weight here. She made it, she might've done her studies like in Iowa or wherever else in the middle of the country, but she is a Korean American woman from Koreatown, Los Angeles. And um, she talks about Han, which we've talked about on the podcast before as well. But Sam, I think I wanted to kind of um, get, you know, get your gauge on this too. Like she connects Han with this idea of minor feelings, right? So can you kind of explain what, um, what Han was to you um, before reading this book and if it kind of like, if it matched with her definition of Han and how you saw it like kind of, um, you know, being similar or different from how she, de she defined it? I think, uh, like you said, like the, the fact that she's from Koreatown and whatnot, and when you're, I guess, more on the artistic side or, or whatnot in, in like places like Koreatown where everything's kind of like groupthink, you know what I mean? Because you're trying to survive. Um, but anyways, like from that, I think, uh, Han, how, how can I explain Han? It's it's kind of like the middle child syndrome, the underdog. You know what I mean? You always feel like the, the cards are stacked against you um, and you have to fight against it. And that's kind of what, what you said earlier about like the traumas and, and always try to save face, right? Like even if there's like troubles at home, you're never going to show that in public. You know what I mean? Like you're kind of taught at a young age that like family business stays in the house and like you you do what you can to make yourself and and you know your family look as good as they possibly can right yeah um and with that it's it's like you said it comes with trauma and like you know it's kind of like you know we were talking about how'd you go through training it's like a it's kind of like a rough training you, you, you don't, yeah. there's no like real you know when you come from like that third world country immigrant mindset there's no sugarcoating shit it's just like you know, just you don't ask why you just do shit because you tell we tell you to do it type deal. Oh, yeah. And then from that comes like, you know, like a weird type of pride and and, you know, just the way you carry yourself. For sure. And, and then I, you you kind of belittle your traumas and you belittle your ooh, yeah. struggles so that you can, you know, 
like get by. <laughs> yeah. And I think we've talked about it in the past, Sam, like where you've, you know, we've, the Hermit Kingdom is something you bring up a lot, right? Korea yeah. went into self-isolation because it's, we all, we all, Korea is often talked about as the, as like the minnow in between two whales, right? Japan and China and Korea mm-hmm. kind of being a gateway of, of power and influence for just one, one Eastern Asian country dominating that, that region. And so for a country that's been invaded so many different times, there is this kind of survivor's instinct that's racked with like, fucking I have to fight harder and work harder than any of these people. Cause like, if I don't fight hard, then my culture might get erased, you know? And I don't know how much of this is like pseudoscience or not, but like there is some aspect, but I know it's true of the soul as someone who believes in a soul is like, there's like, it affects your DNA. Like when your, your parents are really fucking suffering and your parents are really, um, really stressed about something to, you know, generationally, generationally, like that something imprints in your DNA that proves that you might have to suffer yourself or you're going to have some kind of characteristic of suffering yourself. And I think that's that, you know, that's true of our Korean American experience, the, the way that we fight and the way that we uh, the struggle a lot. And what, um, what Kathy, what Kathy Barkong does, man, is, do we just call it CPH? Kathy, I'm just going to use Kathy Barkong the whole time. It's nice. It flows, but <laughs> She connects Han with uh, Minor Feelings, the title of her book, which she gives credit to another author for kind of helping her coin the phrase itself, but she puts a twist on it. So Minor Feelings, the definition she comes up with is a non-cathartic state of or emotion with a remarkable, one more time, Minor Feeling is a non-cathartic state or emotion with a remarkable capacity for duration. And so it's the fucking non-catharsis is a pretty interesting interesting way to define a fucking feeling you know but um because we're always looking for that moment of emotional you know point break but here it's just it's a fucking stagnant stasis of we're just stuck with this fucking trauma and stuck with this survivors you know survivor intention and survivors guilt but it has a remarkable remarkable capacity for duration i thought that was so fucking poignantly powerful and sad at the same time it's like imagine not being able to fucking take a good shit for, for, for your entire lifetime and then passing that passing down to, to your, your kids and all that. But um, yeah, like how Dweez and Edgar and AC, like how do you react to like that idea of minor feelings? Cause I know even within like Mexican culture of, of being, being colonized and all that stuff that, that exists in certain aspects as well, but surviving through it is something that's important to, to all of our cultures here. Um, I'll go ahead and speak since I don't know if, AC's gonna hop in, but um, I will, I will, but you go first, okay? Um, no, yeah, but like that, that sense of survival for sure, um, overlaps not just with Mexican culture, but you know, just like a lot of um, uh, immigrants that come here from uh, from different parts of the world and like first generation anything really. Um, there are a lot of times where you know your parents will make you see like what it is like the hardships that they had to go through in order for them to provide you know what they're able to provide for you here in this country but um there's definitely a lot of like unspoken things that you just kind of pick up on um from um what's the word i'm looking for (laughs) i guess just over time like seeing how your parents are with certain things and then um you know, growing up around maybe people that, um, not necessarily non, uh, people of color, but like, um, 
people that just even aren't like first generation, they could be like third, fourth, fifth generation, whatever, you know, they don't really have those same, I don't want to say struggles, but um, they don't have that same outlook on the world that, um, you know, kids of, kids of immigrants are going to have that they, that they input on them for sure. If that made any yeah, sense. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Cause I think the, like the way I view it is it's like the privilege, you know, of like not really having that, that understanding of survival because like, you know, growing up as a first generation, you know, Latino here in the United States, it's like, you kind of not only bear the burden of like, and I don't really want to call it a burden, but you, 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 you really carry the weight of like the pressure sometimes, you know, because yeah. you, you really think about it. And like, I think about it from my perspective and it's like, my parents came here and their struggle was always to me very like straightforward. I saw it firsthand, you know, through the through the worst of moments that it could have possibly gone through. Like my mom having to work late nights, my dad having to work double shifts, like um, so it's it's crazy and, and sometimes that that alone is, is very like straining because you think to yourself like you know, am I going to have to go into this cycle? Like, am I going to have to, you know, continue to, to be a part of this? How do I get out of this, you know? So like how Edgar said, you know, I, I definitely feel that like there's sometimes that like people who aren't um, first generation, you know, kids of immigrants or, or, or weren't necessarily in a position of privilege that, that go through that, you know? And it's it's tough because like it's something that I think as as children of immigrants, you you definitely, you know, see it a lot more. Yeah, man. And, and Dewey's for you, like we, you've heard us mention Han, you've mentioned Han yourself as something that, you know, you're, you're, you've kind of discovered and all that and understood, but um, you know, what's, how, how does kind of, what's your defining relationship with Han and minor feelings? Like, how did you, how did you interpret this as um, when, when the author was talking about? Yeah. And I think like, you know, there's another, one of the notes that you sent Josh before we were talking just things that like struck you um, this idea that uh, what, what was it like it's suffering is not a competition or something. Yeah. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Um, I think that like, that's something that gets at least like as a non first generation American white, you know, cisgender male like you know like these when I read stories about uh someone who, who's not like me which generally I prefer to read <laughs> than stories about people that are like me um and w you know as I wrap around it it's like that's one of the uh the key characteristics or the key points that um I personally like reading about is like even like cultural yes of course like it's interesting to read about the korean american experience but just like kathy park hong's experience yeah. like her specific experience and what she calls it and how she describes these things that are are both like it sounds like describable and like you you josh could relate to them in some respects um like you could you could see yourself and you could feel seen in the way she was writing but also just like of course she's a poet right there's a whole other like layer to this with yeah. her because she has this and we'll talk about language in a second i think but um and like how she talks about english itself um but it's so cool like when 
when you are talking from a space that's not about like, hey, like I'm gonna just only relate like my specific experience to other people's like, or my perception of their experience, which is obviously like, it's so hard for any of us to really do the, as much as I can read these stories. Like it's impossible for me to ever know. Um, and it's impossible for Kathy Parkham to ever know what it's like to be like a black man in America or it's impossible. You know what I mean? So it's, it's not, it's like a, it's a one way ticket to like drive yourself crazy. If you try to like legit, like compare your experiences, whether it's sufferings or compare your privileges or what have you and so what I loved about like just the way she talks about a lot of these concepts is at least for me it was as if she was just she was just operating from a place of like boldly being herself about what she was feeling and describing it in ways that like you know maybe she had never heard it described and it seemed like you know, it seemed like she suffered through this book, to be honest, like, mm. this book was really difficult for her to write. I think she says that on a number of occasions. But just to hear her, like, try to, to say these things and try to talk about, I mean, think about, you know, if we're talking about from a neutral perspective, like the Asian American experience versus like other writers of color, or other storytellers of color, I think that like the Asian American one, gets super lost um one of it partially because of demographics um just sheer numbers um and another part is like because of concepts like han like minor feelings of like the tendency for a lot of especially east asian cultures to like again like what you guys were saying like sort of withstand the trauma without like responding in any way or just like enduring and like not saying anything about it, like not have the anti-catharsis, like not having that release. And I don't know, I'm curious to, to know because I know that like Slim, Slim, you heard about, you heard someone, someone knew the book before you were gonna read it and they had like feelings about it. And then I'm curious to know like if you guys felt like she did a good job of like fucking going in and like expressing it for real and like getting, maybe breaking through at least for the, you know, 200 some odd pages of the book and breaking that mold of like, not like shutting up about you know whatever that she maybe had been told her whole life she was supposed to shut up about yeah uh and then yeah what you said earlier um it was like my sister's friend had read it and my sister has a copy of it and she was planning to read it uh but her friend was kind of like uh, it was very just it was very boohoo and you know like i guess she didn't really relate to the story as much but, you know, there's also a whole, like, portion of Asian people who who are always, you know, if you grew up around L.A. or New York or, like, you know, like Texas or, like, certain places in America, you can still be a cool kid and be Asian in, like, a group of Asians. You know what I mean? Um, and sometimes, like, those Asians lack, like, being able to empathize with, with an Asian American or a Korean American who who didn't have that story of being like with the in crowd and, you know, kind of an outcast because they're artistic or, you know, like they're not like the normal cookie cutter Korean, which is, you know, like that's kind of how you fall in line once you get to middle school, I guess. Um, and as far as like, did she tell the story? Well, I, th I think so. There were like, like Josh said, and I, you know, I felt those things too, where, certain things when she tells the story you're like oh like you could correlate it to a moment in your life you know what I mean um 
And, you know, and like you said earlier, she's also a poet. So there's some parts where it's just like, it's a little intensified with the way she, she puts it into words. Um, so yeah, I, th I thought overall, like she was able to, to tell a story and connect with, I, I mean, I'm sure she was able to connect with people that weren't Korean American too, but like as a Korean American, I felt like she, she explained it pretty well and kind of, kind of, you know, there's parts of it where like you, you might feel some shame about like those minor feelings that you had growing up or, you know, whatever. Yeah, and I think on that note, before like uh, we we keep on moving here, but I I just wanted to remark on uh, what Sam's sister's friends were saying about kind of the boohoo nature of it, and just like you know, is life really that that difficult or that complicated? And like I do, I, I identify with that as well. Like I think if I really search deep in my heart for why I came to LA in the first place, is because I wanted to be looked at as more of a less other and more part of the majority you know or like a majority diverse people right it's less less struggle less fight and i think that was kind of naive in a certain way to think that but that's what i really thought when i was like younger and had a really tough time fitting in high school it was like in la there's more korean people there's more asian people um i can maybe fit in without having to fit out so so, so easily you know and um i get that i think in la it's a lot easier to be you know the cool kid in school and be an asian kid i think and this is probably speaks a lot about me and my my character as well. But like, it's it's really difficult to not just be known as the Asian kid as your main identifier. I think outside of Los Angeles. And this is me coming from New Jersey, which is a you know a decent amount of Asian people. Like, imagine if I was coming from Minnesota or uh, Idaho or something like that, where there are pockets of people. Um, but wanting to escape that identifying factor of just like being the Asian kid in school was why I moved to LA in the first place. Cause I, I saw there is some kind of semblance of you can actually make a life out here without race being the defining thing. Now I think I've, I've come to realize like the race is a defining thing of this country forever and ever, you know, and while we can enjoy and like have like these times where we're more like, um, more like gracious and more like natural in how we act and we don't always have to be fucking in our heads all the time. I think, um, it will kind of continue to define what, what we do and what, and what we think about. Uh, yeah, that was just kind of a note I had. But um, as we go into it, we mentioned language before and I uh, wanted to kind of hit these two notes back to back because this is, I think, fucking fascinating what she said. First, she said that, uh, which is, fuck, this is one that fucking broke me up was, uh, where is it? Because of language, you see the humiliation of your parental authority figures. And it's like, that's so fucking crazy to me because I'm like, yeah, half the time you're growing up and like, I'm trying to defend my parents from looking dumb, you know? And eventually like you fucking internalize that because they can't speak the language very well. And that to maybe they are, kind of, they're, they're not as complex individual human beings that they should be given credit for, you know? And like, because you see um, white folks around them, even, you know, people of color around them slow down and enunciate and do stuff. You're like, you end up, having this thing where your authority is immediately fucking buckled you know um and these people that are have, have such power in your you know in your hierarchical life are like humbled so easily in this new country and i, I was just wrecked by that and so um yeah did you guys have any reaction to to when you guys were reading that and like doing that i just i just i was immediately thought about my mom and like you know the kind of like 
the uncomfortable looks that, you know, that my white friend's parents would give her when like she was trying to say something. That's why she like, she didn't really talk very much, even though she's like a crazy woman and she's fucking funny and smart as fuck. And like, it, 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 it hit on this crazy emotion to be like, I had to defend them, but also like, why do I have to defend people that have this power over me in the first place? You know, that it fucked me up a lot. I thought that was a great point. Yeah, no, like, I feel like that was insanely relatable just because, like, I mean, obviously, like, coming again from, like, um, who immigrated here, like, English not being their first language, like, you get that a lot, like, whether it's at a parent-teacher conference in, in middle school or high school, you know, yeah. or, like, um, just in any day-to-day experience, you know, like, it almost feels like, I don't, I don't know like the exact term for it but just the feeling of it almost feels like some you know not ashamed in the, like a so to speak uh, oh like i don't want to be like associated with you or like kind of any of that sort of manner but it's just like you almost have that like back thought where it's like oh man like i'm a little like I'm embarrassed you know or like why do i gotta be like kind of stepping in you know and and i think that that was like looking back at it like if there's one thing i could have ever like fit about myself as a younger individual is getting getting past that you know and not about, about those specific moments no that's real that's really real sam how about you man you've always been the guy who has the comeback for everything and like i know that sam is in fucking um he's 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 the cool kid who hangs out with everybody who gets along with everybody because i think you're so sharp with how you can fucking give shit right back to someone who might do that did you ever feel that around like your folks when like they were in a different space or because it was LA, because there's so many Koreans around, did you not really have that kind of, uh, that, that kind of relationship with like school uh, teachers or, or even like business owners, anything like that? Um, no, I think I like, there was a little bit of embarrassment growing up where like, you know, if there was a time where my mom had to come speak with somebody and, you know, like, but in a sense, like like you said like our, our our it's not like our parents don't feel that too you know what i mean they're not stupid so i was I, I luckily had my older sisters show up to a lot of my shit to like you know whatever just in general but i think it's 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 a lot similar to like the lunchbox moment right yeah that, that all like a lot of asian kids experience it's just like you should be proud of your culture and you love Korean food and all this, but like when it comes to the public perception and the way that you get looked at or the way people treat you because of it, 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 it puts a little shame on you. Right. And I think that's probably why I got so good at like talking shit, like, you know, like hanging around with these different people and learning that like, if you're quick witted and if you can make fun of yourself first, then like nobody can really hurt you. Right. Yeah. So I think that was defense mechanism more than anything. Gotcha. I think, I think language itself, like, I think it's a venue. It's a venue where I think America suffers and is, has like some of the biggest problems of all Um, because yeah, like I've witnessed uncountable you know, uncountable instances where someone is just talking down or is being rude or is just, you know, and it it happens sometimes in really overt ways. And then sometimes in really like subtle ways, right? Like I remember there was a Thai restaurant on the West side uh, when I was in college at LMU 
I think it was called Lotus of Sam or Star of Sam, one of the two. It's on Lincoln Boulevard, not far from the Cock and Bowl, which used to have a lot of great EPL matches. And this place was the best, easily the best Thai food on the West side. Like I'll fight, I'll fight anybody over that. Um, and I've, all the best Thai food is not on the West side, but on the West side, it was the best uh, at, in, in its day. And when I would read the Yelp reviews, this was back when I was like writing Yelp reviews and shit, like when it first started. Like, like <laughs> yes. um, and uh, I don't, I don't write them anymore, but I, I remember like reading like these people, someone was like, yeah, this place is okay. But like, the waitresses don't even understand English or like, you know, the, and, and that type of shit, dude, like for me and I like it pissed, you know, it pissed me off, like on so many levels, it's not. And again, like, these aren't my parents. These aren't, so this is like far removed from like the type of shit that you guys had to deal with for the same topic. But like, yo, like, <laughs> First of all, you're coming to like a Thai restaurant, okay? Like you're, you're walking into a space that's like by definition, like, you know, if you want good Thai food, I like borderline, like I, if they speak too good of English, I'm going to be like, what's going on in here? You know, what kind of, how, how authentic is this Thai food, right? Like, so, you know, miss me with all the, you know, weird, like, what, what are these demands? You know, like someone's supposed to like, a waitress which is making like however much they're making per hour like is also supposed to have like perfect english on top of the fact that they're going to be serving you this like super authentic thai food for low prices you know i wasn't like falling out of control and going to like a fancy restaurant you know and so that's like just one example but i mean the examples are really countless and um what when i say it's one of america's worst or like the reason it's such a fucked up thing isn't just because of all the pain that is inflicted on you guys and and anyone else who's experienced that but of what america loses in the process because you're now talking about generations and generations this whole concept of a melting pot is problematic because it basically tells everyone to dis like to lose lose your language like don't we don't want your language we don't want your culture like like leave it away and so that we can all just melt into like this pot of like like bland mayonnaise you know like (laughs) that nobody wants to eat nobody wants to be part of the shit like i and again i'm i guess you could say i'm biased because i love foreign languages and i love like other kinds of thought and like way of looking at the world but so much is lost i mean you know a lot of japanese americans that have been here for a long time obviously through the through the internment camp situation and like, you know, the, I mean, the, the level of Japanese is completely wiped out. And you see this time and time again with folks that aren't first generation, just like how quickly the language is lost. And it's exacerbated, not just exacerbated, it's demanded by like an American populace that will not fucking give you two seconds to like try to pronounce a word again. You know, like what, 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 like that type of shit that like, dude, it drives me so insane. And I've, you know, I heard my dad like talk down to people like speaking slowly, like that type of shit too. I don't think he was ever, I don't think he was ever doing it to like cause a problem, but I've seen people do it, you know, deliberately to hurt people. And it's just like, yeah, it just breaks my heart. And I think America loses out because of it, to be honest. No, and that's that's an important thing. Like I think um, 
you know, shout out even, it's weird. When I was growing up in Queens, it was, it was different. Like when we were in fourth grade, third grade, and the melting pot thing came up, and like, they're like, yeah, like melting pot's in the fucking teaching guide here, but like, it's really not a melting pot. Like, you can see all around you, like, everyone's speaking Spanish, Korean, fucking, um, uh, like, there's like some like Hindi dialect going in there. I'm like, and like, so they're like, oh, it's like a mosaic or whatever, salad bowl, right? That's what, and I was like, but like to encounter that as like a fourth grader, third grader was fucking important because the melting pot wasn't the, the wasn't the goal, you know, and right. English wasn't the thing that we're melting into. I think that's also important is that like this fucking monoculture of kind of white English speaking is what we should uh, strive to is what entertainment tells us we should we, until until very recently tells us we should strive for is, is very it's not. Anything you what you're saying, it's not it's not ideal, but it's we lose we lose if we think like that, you know. And I think the beauty of this is that we can all contribute and we can all be at the same time distinct from one another in our difference, but also um, add a great a great amount to each other in the, in that case. But as we're talking about language, I wanted to get into another big topic. Actually, um, man, the whole chapter about the Korean artist Teresa Cha, who was um, raped and murdered in New York, um, that was fucking. Was, mind-blowing and heartbreaking and the idea of you know uh the sexual violence involved but not you know not only like a beautiful artistic death but the sexual violence that was intended there um against an asian um, female as well woman was well was you know super super fucking hurtful and but powerful to talk about but um she talks about using english as a weapon using language as a weapon right um, and what she meant by this is like she is purposefully not talking in the diction in the correct, you know, quote unquote correct way that, you know, uh, like, uh, like, of, of like Anglo-Saxon or American English. She's like actively chopping up words, um, using kind of weird um, kind of prepositions to make a point, to make a creative exercise out of this English language. And I think it was so counterintuitive to how I was taught, even how I was raising my own mind and, and my own heart to, to kind of operate in fucking everyday life that, you know, I'm, I'm astounded. I was astounded by it, really, because like my thing was like, I'm, and when I write, it's like I'm trying to be, uh, I'm trying to be the least confusing as I can be. I want to get the point across. And that usually means that I have to follow grammatical rules established by the APA you know, MLA, New York Times, fucking Chicago Tribune shit. And for poets and artists to take this um, measure of art and say like, we are actively gonna make this confusing on, you know, from the jump. So you can understand, uh, you can understand our experience through the way that in which that we talk and we choose to present ourselves. So Dewey, that's kind of a man who not only is an incredible writer yourself, but studies foreign languages, you know, with uh, with a great zeal, like what, what did this, idea of like um, using English as a weapon means to you. It's just one of my favorite, favorite things about the book for sure, because you see her struggle with it throughout the book. Like I, I'm like kind of like glancing over here at the notes that I have, but mostly my notes were just photos that I took of full pages because I didn't know which quote I liked best. <laughs> I have 22, 22 photos of different pages of the book that like I could probably talk about at least for like an hour each. So I'm not going to do that to you guys, but like, um, no, but, but the, on, on page 101 or yep. 101, 
like she starts off one of the sections with how far can I travel harvesting bad English before I'm called a trespasser. And she starts going through like the times where she borrowed Hawaiian pigeon and Spanglish. Um, and she talks about like how in crazy rich Asians, Aquafina got like called out for like using blackface in her, like the way she talked and like, right, 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 so right. she like, you know, she really like goes through and like grapples with this idea of like, if I'm going to use English as a weapon and like sort of deconstruct it in these ways, um, like, and also like borrow other, like, like, where are the limits to this? And like, you know, what are like the things and, and she, and maybe this is why, you know, Slim's friend, part of the reason why it's like, someone could say like, you know, they seem to be complaining and it seems like hard for her. I think it genuinely is hard for her, but I also just love that she like shows us, you know, through the whole book, how she's like grappling with stuff and she's like getting somewhere and not getting somewhere and like has answering, able to answer questions and not able to answer them. Even the way that the book is written. I mean, these are like several different like short essays but they're, they're written in these blocks that like don't always have to like to do too much with the block right before it. Um, and she's able to like dance with she, I think she chose like all this, like quite deliberately. And you brought up that second to last chapter. I think it was about the, uh, the artist who's, you know, raped and murdered and like, dude, it's so cool that she like dedicated and did so much research, she, like did this whole, you know, this thing it reminds me of, uh, Gil Scott Heron, one of my favorite artists of all time, he he ended up writing his whole memoir about his life, about Stevie Wonder, basically, and how Stevie Wonder, like, should get, like, so much credit for making Martin Luther King Day a national holiday, um, and the book was called The Last Holiday, and it was, like, a book about, like, Gil Scott Heron's life, but really, he was just, like, but, like, check this, like, um, check, check out, like, what Stevie Wonder did in this period, um, because Stevie Wonder ended up replacing Bob Marley, who actually died and was going to be the original opener for the Hotter in July tour um, during the same time where that song, Happy Birthday, the Stevie Wonder Happy Birthday song, he was yeah. trying to spread that across the country and like get, you know, MLK to So I'm like digressing here. But the point is, like, I really love it when an author can like be writing about themselves, writing about themselves and then like sort of switch and write about someone completely different who like and then they're you know, bouncing things off them. And so like, I mean, to say that like Kathy Park Hong is like not a complete master of like the English language. And like, I think her mastery is even better because she's a first generation American and she has access to, you know, Korean vernacular and her brain is like straight up wired probably differently. Of course, she like also studied poetry, um, which is the best form for like really taking apart language and playing with it and realizing that like, rules and the enforcement of rules isn't necessary to make like meaning really well felt and all that. So like, I think if for no other reason, if someone was like, I'm not interested in like Asian American culture, or I'm not interested in like the Korean American experience. Like if you just love good writing and you don't need to read like pop romance or like science fiction, just read the book for this, for the sheer verbiage that she uses and how she like, uses language and grapples with language uh like throughout the book because that all by itself is worth reading this book and that's before you get into all like the very important and meaningful content that we're talking about so yeah i i i loved it and i um i thought that she is just a special writer and one that i'm glad and i'm grateful to that we get access to and 
yeah, I really recommend recommend it for anyone who loves writing. Yeah. Um, kind of attended too, but there was a fucking, God, this is a Woody Allen movie, which is also problematic in, in, in relation to this as well. But fuck, it's like with Vicky Cristina Barcelona, that movie, which is fine. But there was one where the, Javier Bardem, his father was a famous poet. And um, when someone's asking about him, he's like, he refuses to translate his poems into English because he feels like the language is inferior. Yeah, uh, I remember that. I yeah. remember that. And I, I remember that thing that's so fucking unique. I've, I've really heard of that. And that's also because the media I consume is so Western um, American centric, you know, where we mm -hmm. are in the center of the universe. And I think when, um, uh, the, the, the artist Teresa Cha is talking, even um, Kathy Barkham's professor who, who comes to kind of talk to her about using English as a language here. There is this object of, yes, this is a, this is a language that has humiliated the authority figures, but if you in your personal life decide to fuck with it and not give it that power, then like that in itself is like a complete fucking mind fuck and a mind flip of, of the thing, right? If you're, if you're like, this language is almost like beneath me or like it doesn't prove its worth by its mere existence over my own, over my Eastern um, origins, then that's when you get really interesting creative about like metaphysical, metaphorical, all the fucking, you know, the world colliding into, into one. And I think that's a really interesting idea. Like as someone who, you know, is trying to understand, you know, his native tongue better myself, like Korean, you know, fluently, I'm just like, it's always been the back burner because English has been my everyday, like important shit, you know? And so if I were to rearrange that priority of that arrangement, you know, then I think that makes me a fucking more interesting person that also talks to my state of mind and my state of soul in like Korea, US relations. What the fuck does it mean to be a Korean Asian American person here? Like language in itself, it's unlocks everything especially if you're a dual or triple speaker. Edgar, Edgar and AC, do you guys have like similar, oh, Slim, were you about to talk? No, go, go ahead. Ed, Edgar and AC, do you guys have similar like desires, like Josh just said, to want to like, you know, I, I don't know, I assume both of you like speak obviously like fluent Spanish, but like, you know, how could you like write poetry in Spanish or like like what like what level is it and would you want it to be better or like you don't really think about this that often or like how do you guys think about like your your parents native tongues and and like whether or not you'd want to like learn more and use it more I'm just curious yeah um I kind of want to piggyback off what Josh said right now where you kind of mentioned like oh if those like English was more or less like your main thing because that's what you use on a daily basis. But like if the priorities were flipped kind of thing. Mm. And um, it's funny. Cause like, I mean, growing up, that's all my parents spoke to me was Spanish. So that's all I spoke was Spanish up until I started school. And then, you know, all you, um, all they speak in school is English. So then the Spanish slowly started fading, you know? And by the time I got to high school, it was like, I could barely speak a few words. I could still understand it perfectly fine. That was never an issue, but speaking it, I was, I was really embarrassed to try to speak it because it sounded really broken and um, really pocho is what you would call like, you know, somebody that's really Americanized, you know? 
so yeah like i was super fucking embarrassed to even try to say anything in spanish and then um like the year after i graduated high school i got a job <laughs> at a fast food japanese spot not too far from my house but funny enough it was with all mexicans let's go <laughs> and like uh, like a couple salvadorians but basically everybody spoke spanish there mainly you know so like the manager and assistant manager um uh, understood english so i was able i was able to get away with speaking spanglish to them oh. but with everybody else there like the cooks um and everything they pretty much only spoke spanish so being there for four and a half years which is a lot longer than i wish i'd stayed there but one of one of the things that i appreciate about that job is that it forced me it put me in a position where i had to fucking get better at spanish and speaking it um every day or like five days five six days a week for four and a half years like i'm definitely way more comfortable speaking spanish now than i was uh before i graduated high school and it's something that like i said as much as that job fucking sucked and i hated it and it was never want to do that shit again i will always be appreciative of it for bringing that language um or like <laughs> being able to learn that language again basically and being able to use that not just at home but being able to have conversations with my grand like full conversations with my grandparents and you know my other older relatives is something that i wasn't able to do like prior to working there you know, so as much as that job sucked, like it's, I will always appreciate it for giving that back to me. Bro, Dude, that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the shit where it's like, because we, we live in the city that we live in, it really can be like a, a switch in profession for, for a second that can reprioritize that language structure entirely, right? Yeah, and I think that's that's fascinating, man. Like, if I fucking, I mean, I, I'm old because I'm like, if I worked at a Korean newspaper, you know, I'm sure I have to do that. But like, my friend learned he when he was pastoring a church, he was like probably my level of, of of Korean, and then because he had to speak to elders every single day, his Korean went crazy, and they really looked down on you for speaking English, which is like a fun flip, a fun flip of fucking series of events as well. But um, yeah, man, I think that's introducing more ideas that can reprioritize. Um, the power of culture, of Americana culture, I think is really healthy for all of us to really implement all the time. I think that's, there's, there's, a, there's a part of me that's like, that's what the Premier League is in my life as well. It's like, because I realize like, no one, everyone just shits on America for the first time that I've ever been on sports shit, you know? And so I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking like that about like all American shit? But I'm like, oh yeah, we aren't shit in this space, you know? So um, it's healthy. It's really healthy. And I don't, I didn't try, I don't even try to bring in like the Americana and this to be like, let's cheer like this. Or the, I was like, no, that's fine. We're just here for the ride, you know? And like, let's, let's support how we support, but the tradition and the culture is very important and is why we're attracted to this thing in the first place. So there's some parallels there. I'm sure football, we have to sneak in a little footy in there. Yeah. <laughs> nice sneak. A little sneaky sneak. Okay. Um, I'm going to read the, the passage that Dweez, you, you cited here, because I think it's important. Uh, she's talking about Aquafina using a black sin in Crazy Rich Asians, which is also, oh man, there's so many fucking ties. I can go everywhere, but okay, let's, let's just read. When the film Crazy Rich Asians premiered, 
the Twitter sphere called out as blackface the actor Aquafina's accent, an accent not far removed from the K Town once I heard grow from the K Town one I I heard growing up in L.A. It never occurred to me that those K Town girls were doing blackface. I thought they were just talking the way other teens around them talked. Yes. Okay. I'm. I'm. Okay. There's a lot in that. A lot in that. Okay. And then we go into K Town rides. Right. She does a big portion on L.A. and the and LA, L.A. rides here in the '90s. Um, she does not let uh, the the woman who killed Latasha Harlan's off the hook here at all. Um, there, the way that she should have been persecuted, the the shop owner and all that. Uh, I think the big thing also in this is she talks about being stuck in the black and white argument as Asian folk, as brown folk across all. Where do we where do we exist here? And the important thing she she uh, distinguishes is that while the riots were made to be about like this um, immigrant group fighting against black folk, I mean, the bigger thing, of course, that we've, we've talked about in the past is the police forces lack of uh, interest in protecting anything, you know, in, in that time, the fact that they were lined up near Beverly Hills, um, fought four miles down the line, just and let Koreatown kind of burn, right. And fall to the masses. The big thing about it as well is that 40% of the businesses were Latinx owned. Um, and so even within this kind of, black and Asian narrative within the larger black and white narrative, like Latino folk were forgotten in this, which is like, should not be a fact at all when you live in Los Angeles. And at the same time here, she talks about um, this uh, Korean woman immigrant owner of a business interviewed at, you know, on the news. And she wasn't even upset at the black folk or Latino folk or even the Korean folk. She just, you know, in, in, in full sad mode and full real, like real fucking shit mode was just like, there is a hole in this country. And I thought that was fascinating. Like, I think that's a really powerful statement as a poignant thing to say in, in the midst of great loss and the great the midst of fires, there's a hole in this country. And so um, Sam, I know we have talked in the past about how uh, it seems that racism against Asians is the, the last accepted form of a racism, you know, that whether that be comments that, that fly by or actual real violence that happens towards the community, that it's swept under the rug, that it's, uh, if it's not, um, you know, a black person being, being hurt by racism by a white person, that we don't want to talk about it. And I, I think there's, there's definitely truth in that. And I wanted to kind of unpack that. But the fact that, and I want to start off with Aquafina's blackface comment here, because the fact that communities of New York and LA and Cape Towns everywhere talk in this city urbanized kind of lingo. Um, and the fact that we have to kind of like talk that through and translate that into like, is that important enough? Is that right or wrong? Even though that's how just everyone talks on the street is interesting. But um, yeah, can we just talk through like what it feels like to have racism against Asians in this space when it's really black and white? or racism against Latinos when it's just black and white and how even communities can fuck each other up who are not white people in this. Was that, was that, was that, was that, was that too confusing? Like, I, I Slim, just start, Slim just is sitting, people that can't see, he's just sitting with his arms folded with a big grin on his face with a no, long- No, that was I'm not exactly sure what the question is. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about, racism against Asians and why it seems like it is why it is like the last acceptable form of racism 
And now, like, within the context of this book, she really frames it as, like, you know, Black civil rights playing an important part. But, like, what do you think that comes from? And, like, why? And what do we do from here? You know, like, I, for a little context, too, like, China Mac, right? China Mac's come up with this big thing after fucking Asian elders have been lit on fire during, during quarantine and coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, and people laughing as they do. It's, the, it's fucking, it's like modern day fucking lynching. In, in my book, mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. as people respect their elders, it's fucking horrible. And then China Mac came out with this thing called uh, You Can't Burn Us All, which I think is really a po- fucking gangster ass powerful thing to say. But for that, for anyone to have to come out with that shit today is fucking ridiculous and unacceptable. And at yeah, the same time, I mean, I think Arkan argue, yeah, argue something like it's we've done, there's some parts of it that because we keep that shit inward that we don't do that shit. But at the same time, like you've also spoken strongly against out of it. So I want to hear kind of your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's the reason why it's still, I guess, accepted. And it does when violence against Asians happens, it, it doesn't get picked up by the media. And, you know, like the courts won't rule it as a hate crime is because, I mean, we said earlier, it's just the sheer numbers. There's not as many Asians and Asians have just stayed quiet. And the bigger picture is that it doesn't fit the narrative that the media is trying to push. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, um, if 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 these elections and all this and the whole Trump reign for four years have taught us anything, I mean, taught me anything, it's it's the power of the media and how hard they'll push their agenda. You know what I mean? Like on CNN, on loop. so it's just yeah, it doesn't fit the narrative that like American mass media wants to push for whatever agendas they have. Um, And other than that, it's that too many Asians have been docile and haven't spoken up and haven't had the platform to speak up. But now with social media where, you know, with YouTube and all that, Asians have thrived on social media. So if if these, if these, you know, small celebrities, uh, social media celebrities, like start speaking up, then, then yeah, like then it's going to get picked up more. But there's still a divide even within the Asians, right? Like there's people that are, that like have these minor feelings like that Kathy Parkong was talking about where it's just like, oh, it's, it's not our time to speak up. Like, you know, like set your feelings aside because, you know, this is, this is Black Lives Matter. Or this is, you know, like, you know, the, the things that are happening with uh, migrant children getting separated from their families and put in cages, right? So there's always another story where like these people that have more of a voice in America can tell Asians to like, hey, fall back. This is our time to to get our issues across. And too many times and too many Asians, for the most part, will be like, oh, all right. Like we're taught to do that by our parents anyways. Like ain't no thing to us. Maybe you guys are right. You know, maybe my my plight's don't matter as much as yours you know what i mean yeah so yeah it's 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 bigger picture of the media and then it's even our our own asian upbringings where it's like no don't ask questions this is just the way it is because it's the way it is yeah dude i'm fuck i mean that's that's fucking loaded in itself right and i think um because I find myself doing that, doing that a lot too. I'm like, oh, it's not our time. It's not our time to talk about this. It's you know, let's talk about indigenous rights or Black Lives Matter being really about um, the incarceration of Black and Brown folk at the center of it, which I think is so much of the fucking issue of the foundational fucking 
sins of our country, right? I think that's what we're built on. The only thing I, I push back on it, and I'll, I'll come back on it in a second, is like, it's funny because I think, not even funny, it's important to distinguish that Black people fought for Asian people too in the past. Yes. I think that's that's yes. the huge difference is that, um, man, it's like during the Civil Rights Act when, the, when Asian immigrants were still barred for, for from coming to this country. That was part of the fucking, um, that was part of the demands was like, you open up immigration, you stop fucking, um, you stop the the stuff that come, came with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the, the 1880s and, and eventually expanded there too. So that's such an important point of that. Like we gotta we gotta remember, like we gotta fuck with the people that were fucking with us in the past, right? And I think that's- I mean, absolutely. I, and and Asians speaking up for their rights is by no means like you know trying to put uh, yeah. black yeah. and brown plights to the side. Like if anything, we should all be coming to the table together and being like, hey, we've been suffering for a long time. And we're stronger together, right? Yeah, no, you're right. But and 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 there's there's hella Asian people. Let's be honest, who like see that it's brown and and black people. The the, the stories that are getting picked up, like black and brown people are, are attacking Asians. Yeah. If, if yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. So those people have like these types of like ill feelings towards them. But at the end of the day, like you know, hate begets hate, and and this is like a generational thing where like, yeah, if they've only been experiencing racism and, and hatred throughout their generations of like, you know, since forever, like they kind of don't know how else to act. So until we heal the wounds, like there's no way that it's going to get better, but it's not going to happen unless like we're actually working together on it. I'm with you. you. The working together part is, is, I mean, it's something that we, 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 we actively fucking practice, you know, in our fucking lives. And it's difficult sometimes, but it's, it's rewarding. The one thing I will say is like the stuff about like elderly people getting lit on fire. Like that shit is, I don't give a fuck about priorities anymore. I don't give a fuck about whose turn it is anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh yeah. Get your parents a taser, man. I got knife them up, whatever you got to do. Exactly. It's like, if that's the one thing that our Asian culture is good at is preserving old people. So if we're fucking up on that shit then nothing matters in the way that we were raised anymore, you know? So like protect that shit the same way that the kids in fucking cages right now, if we can't protect our fucking most vulnerable people around us, then that's really the issue. And we have to come around that. But the waiting for turn stuff is interesting. You know, I think it's, it's a, it's, it's a continuing discussion. It's, I don't know. I think that sometimes I've, you know, I've been called out for, for being like, yo, this is not your space. This is not your, this is not your time. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, well, then fuck you then. Like, let's, no one's going to get burnt while I'm fucking silent and waiting for our turn here. But there is a, there is a way in my head to be like, let's come together unilaterally and fucking come together as communities who are, who are disparaged and be like, let's fucking work on this. You know, like, cause no one, it's coming to help, man. The, the cops are. It all has to do with that breaking point. Right. And like you said, like in, a 79 or 89 year old woman getting lit on fire if that's not a breaking point as as an asian american like knowing that that could have been your grandparents just walking back from like the grocery store or just taking her afternoon walk like if you can't feel that then like you're fucking uncle wong you know what i mean yeah Yeah, you're you're done yeah we're we're, like we don't you shouldn't claim us because we we definitely not claiming you yeah go go like put on your fucking Lacoste shirt and go go play around a golf, you fuck. Damn, yo, Lacoste, don't sponsor the pod, according to the Apollo <laughs> company, baby. Let's go, round. And not even like, um, I feel like Mexicans or like Mexican Americans here in LA uh, can relate to that shit a little bit. Just like 
you know, seeing videos of people harassing the fucking corn man on the street, yeah. like on the oh, street, yeah, shit yeah. like that. You know, it's like, what the hell did that dude fucking do to you? Like, you're just gonna pull up and throw eggs at him for no fucking reason, just because you can yeah. for like Instagram likes and shit. Fuck you. And I, I remember and I think... even. Oh, go ahead, but... go ahead. Now I was gonna say like there was one I think. I don't remember if it was still this year or last year where, you know, a bunch of dudes were uh, like pulled up and harassed the shit out of the corn man. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how true it is, but I read somewhere that some other like cholos or whatever found those guys and pulled up on their house and like, yeah, I heard about that. Shot it up. And, and that's what it, it is. Like that's, that's what, that's what I want though. for the Asians. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, just like, just like, you know, Mexicans, like, not everyone's hard. Not everyone can stand up for themselves. For like, So, like, a community that will stand up for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think with all that shit that's going on, like, like these kids that, like, have no remorse trying to light an old lady on fire, or, like, you know, people, like, harassing, like, like an old man hustling on the street is, like, it's it's kind of the social media generation, right? Like, in a, in a world where, like, you're super connected with everyone because it's through a screen. Like there's no, like there's no accountability to what you say and do really. Until yeah. I feel like people forgot they get caught. Yeah. I feel like people forget they can still get their ass beat. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the, they, they, they live in a world where it's like, let's do the most shocking pranks on like, you know, like a TikTok or whatever, like, and with that mentality, you forget that that's that's someone else's parent or like someone else. You know what I mean? You for you yeah. de- those people are dehumanized. They're 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 more of a social media handle than they are a person. Yeah, and like all of this that they're doing, like you know, all of these like malicious acts and shit. It's like it's content to them, and that's the most fucked up part. And yeah. it's like almost seen as like, oh, let me see what fucked up shit I could do for a like. So it's like. And it sucks that it always falls on like minorities as well. You know, it's like, why is it that, you know, it's, it's always the people of color that are, they're at the hands of this shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think honestly, it's the education around it is so important. Like it's, it, because the sad thing is like the pranks back in the day were fucking, I mean, they were bona fide hate crimes, you know, back in the day, you know what I'm saying? Like they were just like shit that like, people can just get away with like punking fucking, you know, Mexican kid in the face or Asian grandma in the face. And then like, I mean, look at like Vincent Chin, who's like, unfortunately are like Emmett Till, you know, it's just, like, he gets killed in a bar by two people who call them both Chinese and Japanese. You're taking away our jobs. And they just read, they'd walked off free. You know, they fucking mutilated this kid. And he, they walked off, they walked off free. Fucking Mark Wahlberg punches that Vietnamese dude in the face. You know, this war better in the face and like fucking as, as a career after this. Like it's stuff that used to have no no fucking repercussions because it was such such a white supremacy dominated shit. But now we fucking reform that into pranks and fucking social media. But the heart of it is still in the fucking punking minorities in this country. You know, the lesser than, the people who are foreigners, the others, you know? And I think that in itself is, uh, that's that really is the fucking original fucking guilt and the fucking original uh, the shit that the, the country is built on that we need to rectify that we need to educate around because until that is like it'll just keep on taking a newer fucking weirder form but the racism and hatred and violence will continue to exist in that way you know i think just if we're gonna be throwing uh throwing fire on social media which i'm always down to do uh and just <laughs> 
tell talk about why technology is the root of all of our problems, which I think it is, as we as we talk about this on a on a Zoom call and release it on a <laughs> podcast platform. Um, like, uh, I just want to. I I do think one of the most problematic things is this idea that there's even like a lot like a line and like and different groups or different people have to take turns in order to be heard um like just getting back to you know what started the last like discussion what josh was talking about um i think that that's like a totally false and unhelpful binary that like it's either your turn or it isn't like what does that even mean you know um and i think that there's a perception that the internet can only like withstand you know because things like twitter uh top trending things it's like if your topic of concern isn't in the top top trending things like you're not allowed to talk about this right now um and i don't think it's useful um even in like a fabricated reality which is like what the internet is uh what's more useful i think is like multiplicity and spread of as many you know voices you know and then kathy park hong's case we're getting back to the book like she fucking crushed it like her book is incredible like her book deserves to be read um it doesn't matter whether it's like the korean american or asian americans turn to be heard right now like her she you know what i mean like it and and i think that i personally would like to live in a world and i think i do live in a world when i'm not on the internet that's like i'm allowed to like read whatever experiences i want right now like you, you, you know no one's allowed to dictate for you like what you have to consume um as a reader or as like a viewer or you know just because the news cycle is what the news cycle is and people are getting you know irate about x topic right now that doesn't mean that that's the only thing you're allowed to think about or talk about or care about. Um, and I think that's an important distinction, like, you know, again, for the project that I was working on, I don't know if, you know, most people probably didn't even hear about this. This was like the day before Halloween. Uh, one of, we were talking about CNN earlier and that's why it came to mind, but one of the CNN reporters, Amara Walker was in uh, the airport in New Orleans. And she just like experienced like three back to back to back moments of like racism from like i think both like staff and like random people like back to back to back like almost like comedic if it weren't so tragic of people just like the way that they were talking to her and stuff and she's like she's just like freaking out and she wrote about it and she's just like i don't like what what you know what i mean and you know it's not it's nowhere near the extent of like you know a beating or you know the violent things that often get on camera but for me it's like it is pretty violent in and of itself to just be like a citizen of the country and be at the airport, like trying to go back home and like have to go through a gauntlet of like racist incidents, um, I think is like, you know, crazy. And the fact that I, I just don't think someone like, you know, Amara Walker doesn't have to wait for her turn to like explain her experience or to, to share her story. And I recognize that like the way that social media funnels work, it means that not all voices will be heard. But I do think, again, just to big up uh, One World and other platforms and, you know, movie studios, different places and people who are helping get out these other stories and giving those things a voice. Dude, there's plenty of shit if you just get off Instagram. There's plenty of shit if you, you know what I mean? There's, there are <laughs> things out there. There are things out there to, like, find and learn about. 
So you don't have to feel like you're only allowed to care about one thing at a time or, you know, like having some sense of like personal responsibility for like what you want to learn about is also possible too. And that's to say nothing of the fact that like, you know, you know, we all, we all have 24 hours in a day. Like, you know, you can't read all the stories in the world. We'll never, we'll never be able to like know all the experiences of everyone in the world. But like, I don't think it's helpful to Josh just to like get back to the thing originally. Like, I don't think it's helpful to like say you're only allowed to care about like X topic right now or X like racial plight right now. And so I think mm-hmm. you're, you are very much in your right to like, and you should, and always like, and, and I think the Asian, to be honest, I do think the Asian American group more than any other American minority group deserves more, more stories. Like, you know, like I, I do think it's harder to find them than it is others. Um, so yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a great, yeah, they, that 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 um that news example is super proud. I was remember reading about it as well. Um, but yeah, in this time when we can read anything and there is kind of a more uh, abundance of choice, I think that's super. Um, it is it is kind of heartening in that way, right? Um, Kathy Park Hong talks about the what did she say? The single stories were allowed, especially like, and that's kind of my experience, right? I, I said that on the, on the top of like how there's so few voices that um, so few voices allowed in the in the room that you're just like, oh, this is the Asian American story. I, I, I t- tell the story all the time, but I remember watching Joy Luck Club, a movie about um, Asian women and their daughters and motherhood and growing up into their moms and all that. And I was like, oh, this is me. This is, oh, this is the, like, I'm on the screen. And I'm like, cause that's the only one there was there, you know, before big bro, big bro Jed and uh, uncle Jackie came there. but. Um, Straight up, I think she also has a point about this. Um, and this is really, I think, goes in line with this. We're afraid, it's like, we tell stories that keep white people comfortable because we, in our head subconsciously, we're like, because then we're allowed more time to tell other stories. And so she talks about like, not if I don't hold white supremacy complicit in my suffering, then they'll acknowledge that this is, oh, okay enough for me to get another book. But that's what kind of at the heart of what we're talking about, right? And all these races, what's at the center of it is American racism and American imperial kind of um, doctrine, right? No matter that's what makes an inequality happen. And so it's like, we have to come together and break this shit together. But I think it comes at the cost of being like, we have to make the society that we're in uncomfortable with about hearing, about listening to what the hell we have to say and not sugarcoating for people, as we said before, right? Like we have to be like, the reason why so much we're we are the way we are is because of war started by america and as now citizens of this country we have this very fucked up understanding of a citizen of the world because it's like i have an asian face but i know for a damn fact like it is because of american power fighting russian power and chinese power that my family is the way that they are you know and the more that we realize and understand that and then bring that into our creative endeavors the, I think the better we'll understand each other, right? And if we don't need the fucking New York Times now to publish us anymore, like we can do it on Patreon or we could do it on fucking Apple Podcasts. Like, I think that gives us an ability to be like, we can tell the stories that we need to be able to tell, you know, and we need to be able to process. That, I thought go that was off, really important. King, go off, King. Let's go, let's go. 
but that's important. I mean, I fucking do. I, I tell you guys all the time, like I fucking love sports because I wanted to fit in with my white friends. You know, a lot of that is because it's like sports is like the ultimate unifier. Right. I learned to love David Letterman because I didn't know what the hell my white friends were talking about, you know? And like, I forced myself to understand that culture. So there's a history, a repeated history of me, like making white people comfortable as a way to fit in, you know, as a way to make friends. But now as I'm like trying to come into fucking reckoning with under understanding my own Asian-ness in myself, like, I'm like, what are the uncomfortable facts that we have to talk about, you know? Um, what does it mean to be anti-racist for not only a white person, but an Asian person to myself? And I think um, we need more of that. It's stories that not only make our traumas, maybe our problems more upfront, but like maybe make powerful white society uncomfortable. And those are the stories that I encourage out of everybody, you know, in Power, all, all people. Powerful white society needs to be made uncomfortable. Yeah, man. It, it must happen. It's the best thing in the world for, I think it's great for everyone to get uncomfortable personally, but I think that white, the white, populace in america europe as well um needs to be made uncomfortable uh because yeah like kathy park hong had another great line about it let me see if i can find it um which was really 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 key to this it was it was uh in the future white supremacy will no longer need white people uh the artist lorraine or grady said in 2018 uh, prognosis that seemed at least on the surface to counter what James Baldwin said 50 years ago, which is that the white man's sun has set, which is it then which prediction will hold. Um, I think that's, that's like the knife's edge we're on right now is like, I do think that like that shit's so entrenched that it just needs to be disrupted in a major way. And I, you know, yeah, I can, only, I can only say, I can only speak for myself that I think it's the best thing in the world for for white people specifically to be made uncomfortable, but all of us to be made uncomfortable. And like, you know, I, I think I agree with what Lorraine O'Grady said. And I think is what you were saying, Josh, earlier about like storytelling. It's like, if, if, if people are by, you know, publishers and movie producers and record producers, they're encouraged to do the safe thing continually and tell stories that like white people are comfortable with. Um, then we're, then it's only perpetuating white supremacy further and further. So, yeah, man, we need a new fucking, um, discourse of ideas, man. And on, on there, on your note, we we're talking about before, um, on page 75, Kathy Park Hong quotes, uh, Charles Mills. So she says, uh, based on socioeconomic hierarchy, she's talking about white folk now, based on the confidence that one is unmarked and free to be you and me, the ironic result of this innocence is that whites are unable to understand the world that they themselves have made. And I think that's like crazy that whites are unable to understand the world that they themselves have made. And that speaks to the power of like, bro, Asian stories, Latino stories, black stories, they're not going anywhere, man. We're getting more and more prevalent. And so for the white folk in the audience, who, you know, our beloved, our beloved white, white listeners here, it's like a big thing. It's like, bro, like, the immigrant story ain't going nowhere. Our voice is getting louder and louder. We refuse to speak down on it. Like, you need to come to understand it. Like the way that I was like fucking hungry to learn about David Letterman or hungry to learn about the Tonight Show and 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 the Yankees Red Sox history is like 
that need, I think that once that hunger is shared towards other cultures, like that's a fucking, that's a huge positive, man. I think that's the way that we all come to the table together. And then you understand what my immigrant mother came through, you know, and like went through and all that shit. Like Eddie Wong in his old book was um, said, his, and he gives advice to white people as well. He's like the big, biggest thing I tell any, any person in the world, I don't care if you're your first generation Taiwanese American, or if you're 12th generation German, French, Dutch, uh, Dutch American in this country, is that you need to go back to the country where your ancestors are from. That will unlock an idea of yourself that you, you do not realize yet. And I think that's a super powerful way to, to understand that this way is not the only way. Um, and that's kind of, that's a, that's a big part of the journey for all of us. Kind of piggybacking off that, I know, I'm sure AC can, you know, uh, say the same, but going back to Mexico um, every year growing up as a kid, definitely, you know, I think um, going back at such a young age made me, definitely made me realize what it took for like my grandparents and my um, parents to leave that and that create opportunity for themselves and our family here um, because I didn't really it was just what's the word I'm looking for but I think just lear learning about that at an early age it's not something that I had to really struggle with too hard growing up like seeing that if that makes sense and making those like parallels of you know I, I'm I'm all over the place right now. No, but I think I, I, I think I, 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 I think totally Alex knows what, Alex knows what I'm trying to get at. I'm yeah, so fucking bad. No, because because I mean, going as a child and even like at one point, I lived there for about a month uh, right after my grandfather had passed at a very young age, and and just seeing you know the difference in life and the difference in upbringing and children, I think at a young age was a very powerful thing for me to see because it made me realize that you know not a not only did I have it so good here, but b like you know the joy and happiness that people find within what they have is something so beautiful, you know, like I thought that was very moving, but ultimately I think the time that I felt most impacted going back was funny enough this, this past time for our CCL match, because mm. I felt like as I had the time, you know, me having gone as a child and me having gone as a teenager, maybe in high school and, and me now coming back as a, at the time, a 22-year-old, which I mean is not all that big of a difference, but as a more well, you know, defined person, I think made me realize a lot. And even from the very moment that we landed, from taxi ride to the multiple encounters that we had with locals, I just kept coming back to the fact that it was like it hit me a lot harder this time around. You know, it it didn't. I didn't get a chance to see family on this trip, but it almost felt like everybody there was, and it kind of was like. A, a big trip just because each and every single time I wanted to to just you know give everyone that embrace and 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 really just be like like thank you for for giving me that newfound understanding of you know your your day-to-day -day life and and just understanding how you know privileged I am to even to 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 be in my situation you know and yeah it, that was I think that was that was super powerful and yeah, I think like, that's Go ahead, Edgar. No, I was just kind of, kind of like piggyback, piggyback off what Alex said, where, you know, going back and seeing like, um, not just seeing like the young kids that grow up there, because um, my family they come from like a super, super small fucking ranch in Mexico, mm -hmm. um, 
So, I mean, it's a lot nicer now than how it was uh, back then. But yeah, like back then, uh, there wasn't much to do, but you'd see kids finding joy in the like simplest fucking things. And like, it was infectious. So, you know, me and my cousins that live there and my cousins that were also visiting um, from either here in LA or just um, other parts around the country, because all my family would, you know, just go back for the holidays. Um, you know, we would get caught up in just having fun doing the littlest randomest things and not having to be so caught up about, you know, the newest this or that, but just finding joy and like simple shit is like, even if it's just like really dumb shit, like fucking what we used to do, was we would get fireworks and because it was on a ranch, like there were like just cows and horses walking up and down all the time. So there's just like fucking shit everywhere. <laughs> and one of my cousins had the bright idea to just fucking start throwing fireworks in like piles of shit and it was like the funniest thing <laughs> up until somebody oh, would what? you know not run fast enough and then fucking get hit but like oh stupid stupid shit like that like that's funny as fuck yeah. yeah and and i think that's what's dope about it i mean i'm sure that spice and myself have had that same type of experience going back to korea or even just visiting relatives like when you can visit it and you like you see your roots and you under you have more of an understanding of you know where your parents came from and why kind of you know you can see little reasons of why they are the way that they are and you know, and from that, you can you can get more of a pride of your culture and who you are as a person um, after getting some understanding of it. And I, it kind of takes you back to like the the plight of the black American. Right. It's like they. Yeah. That's what was stripped from them. They uh, up until like, you know, like 23 and me and stuff like they weren't able to see their roots. Right. Like they're not able to understand like, oh, I'm from you know, my family's from this village over here and they, you know, they, they used to do this or like, and because of that, I, I think has a big reason to do with like why the healing's taking so long or why they haven't gone to that, that full healing point is because, yeah, like they, like without an understanding of your roots, like, like it's harder to have like pride in who you are, I feel like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Not for sure. kind Even... of made me think about that. No, yeah, like the fact that we have that um, privilege of, you know, being able to go back to where our parents came from and, you know, seeing, like Slim said, seeing our roots and seeing how they were raised and how that's played into how you've been raised here in the States, like that is a privilege, you know, and I think that is something that um, a lot of us do take for granted and we don't realize that, you know, like Black Americans don't have that same privilege of yeah. Uh, knowing their background just because of, you know, they're so far, far removed from their ancestors that first came here, you know. That's real, man. That's real. Um, yeah, man, larger discussion on that. I think that's super important. Uh, first of all, go back the best we can. And I think for some of the Black friends who, who have, you know, traced it back through various means, I think that's important for them as well. Um, my this kind of brings me to a, like a last point the last point i kind of had in my notes um of the book and we can take this um further or you guys can kind of drop it and we can um we can kind of end as is but you know we got to end on fucking uh 
beauty, bro, on uh, faces. You know, I'm into fucking that that uh, that face shit, that superficial shit. But the superficial shit that's really uh, very, very fucked up that I, I found out about in this book is that double eyelid surgery was popularized, maybe possibly even invented by an American surgeon uh, during the Korean War who um, used this profound knowledge to practice double eyelid surgery on um, sex workers, Korean sex workers, so they look more appealing to GIs on the military bases. And um, I'm not sure, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people who know, but maybe some who don't, but like, I think about, it said, uh, I was researching it about 50% of Koreans are monolidded, which means they don't have that other, that extra flap, you know, on, on, on top of their eyes. And it's, it's possibly, you know, they, they say the, the Asian eyes is, the eyes of an Asian person is the distinguishing feature, distinct feature between Eastern and, you know, Eastern European and all that stuff. And that's what an Asian feature is, their eyes. And uh, the monolid is, is possibly the most Asian out of all the Asian features. And it took this fucking, this, this plastic surgeon, man, employed by the army uh, to use this on, on sex workers um, Korean sex workers and now fast forward 70 years later and that is that surgery is so common in Korea um, and I think that points to the fact that beauty standards have been so westernized and the power that that holds over an entire populace and the fact that it's I don't even know. I'm, I'm having trouble, like, really talking about, you know, it's, yeah. it's so, it's so fucking crazy, you know, it's so, uh, it's, it's so fucked up. And it's, I, like, I know, like, a lot of my friends have had plastic surgery, you know, it's, as someone who grew up with a double eyelid, or um, it was like, looked at as like, almost like a beauty trait for from my family to, to look at to look at me, right. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. I just I I, I liked being fucking, um, you know, like looked, like looked at as like a, a good looking person or whatever. And like, but the, what at the heart of it, if that trait is like, oh, it's, it's to it, the heart of it is like to to look beautiful is to look more like a white person or to look more Western. I think that's so incredibly fucked up. It's something that I've been trying to uncoach in myself, and um, to find out that it actually had some blood and had some bones in in real science and real history is actually terrifying. Man. It really it really was like fucking yeah. It was numbing for me, but also yeah, like a, a shock. I actually just found out about that like apart from uh, apart from this too. Just like I'm a I'm a fan of the show called Big Brother, and uh-huh. the host uh, she's uh, her name is Julie Chen, and uh, she got her start on CBS. I want to say like probably like two decades ago or somewhat. But prior to that, I know that she mentioned this uh, story about how like uh, one of her agents had mentioned about getting that surgical procedure done so that she could get yeah. on television, and like even hearing that anecdote as well as this one it's like damn like i i never for one knew that that was possible and and two just like like you said you know the westernized like westernized uh standards of that you know like yeah it's it's fucked up like it really is that you feel the need or like not even so much you but sometimes it's like that that pressure as well from like external factors that like motivate you to get that because it's like oh i won't get this or you know, I feel like I'm denied these opportunities if I don't like conform to these like, you know, Western beauty standards, you know, and it's like, it's, it's pretty fucked up. Yeah. 
it's like it's almost like as in like our very essence our very faces are at the employ or at the whims of of western power you know of the army in this case you know and it just that part of me just rubs me the fucking wrong fucking way you know and it it hurts that you know mo- a lot of males and females in korea are, are you know are are so uh, readily accept this procedure and i'm trying to just be like yo fucking love it man that's why i was watching this drama what's what's that drama called sam uh with uh Park so Dan, i talk about it all the time newer one uh King? no it's, it's like newer they're all like models it's like all a very beautiful show Park so Dan, oh. drama it's on netflix hold hold with me here record of youth record of youth so it's like kind of nice it's like nice and like not too hard narrating but like they have like three three stars in it all have monolids and i'm like oh my god that's fucking huge i haven't seen that since like the 90s in korea right of like monolithic fucking drama actors and like now that korea is becoming a cultural soft power hub itself like we're seeing a weird flip on that where like people are getting custody to look more korean i'm like that's fucking incorrect too as much as like i'm like plus do you do whatever like approach plastic surgery whatever makes you happy is fucking great i'm just like just know at the heart of it like why just try to like analyze yourself about why you want to look a certain way before you go the full step because i'm just like fuck i mean that that's also the plight of like an asian and i wish we had like an asian woman that that could speak on it here with us but it's just like asian women are like the most fetishized yes. people in the world right and with that even going back to um the the writer that was murdered that was spoken in the book uh cha right yeah i mean you know it's just like we we already talked about like how asians in general seem to be a little voiceless but as an asian woman like even more so right like they're they're always fetishized and and with this underlying current of what we talked about even more so in the book is just like always saving face like like it's Th- those might be asian women might be the most silenced people in america you know what i mean like just because there aren't the numbers and they they choose to to be silent most of the time as as well as being the most sought after you know yeah like women in in the world maybe so it's just like yeah it's it it kind of gives you kind of all these little microcosms that make a bigger picture of like shit like there's a reason why like once an asian girl hits puberty like the thing that like white girls are asking for cars asian girls are asking for double eyelid surgery yeah it's yeah i mean my thing is like bro you make the choice you make your choice that's your choice i, yeah. I support that shit but like absolutely just let's let's fucking let's fucking unpack that as a culture about why the fuck that it's the fact that so many of us are making that choice you know um I don't know. I'm just going to start making fun of all these big eyed people. Just shut up PK. Just hold around die around die. <laughs> all around eyes. We're coming after you. <laughs> okay now. Um man, there's Dweez so many muted. He, yeah. He's about to speak. Go go do his hitting. <laughs> I was just going to say uh first of all, yeah, that 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 when I read that fact, I was both shocked but then like normally when you trace back even things you think are like innocuous or like not that important um back to the history and this is one of like the best things about reading books like this it's like 
it really helps illuminate for you or reemphasize for you why something that was already kind of weird is as fucked up as it is, you know? Um, there's a million of examples like this mm. um, and credit to Kathy Park Hong for digging this one up because I didn't know that either. Um, but, and as Slim was saying, like as the most silenced group, like I think we do got to give it up to Kathy Park Hong for her book and like for just being bold and for us having like reference points from her perspective. Um, I think I've already like bigged her up as much as, you know, time will allow, but like, if I could just like give one more thing, it's just like, we need more people in Kathy Park Hong, who's had Kathy Park Hong's life experience, just fucking killing it in whatever medium, you know, storytelling medium, visual art medium, uh, performing medium. Like Josh, you said like, you know, South Korea is becoming a powerhouse of soft, of soft power. And that's causing certain things to shift and change. And I think that that same could be true in any under underrepresented culture um and again like you know the powers that be and the gatekeepers will have their you know they'll their foot in it obviously but like i know that i know that i'm not the only one of like you know someone who's a not you know non first generation non-minority reader viewer consumer of culture that's just like fucking bored to death with like i don't want to see another like, I don't want to see another Bukowski, like, interp- you know, <laughs> impersonator. Like, I don't want to see these. I don't want to see it. Like, I'm, it bores me to death. Like, I want to hear from people like Kathy Parkong. I want to hear from people who've had different life experiences than the ones that we all hear about. And I know that all four of you guys want to hear from people who aren't, don't have the same experiences you have. Um, mm-hmm. So, like this is what it's all about this is the great american experiment right is like the chance to hear these things and not everyone wants to hear them and they thought they thought that this was going to be different but guess what it's not going to be different motherfuckers we're gonna have to deal with each other we're gonna have to learn so uh you know i think it's i think it's the best thing in the world and if it makes people uncomfortable all the better but you know if you're listening to this and you're just wanting to get clued into a little bit more about like what the Asian American experience is like, like you guys can check me, but I think this is a great place to start. Yeah. Um, I love FCFC book club. I love Kathy Park Hong. Um, I offer this on um, the po- another podcast I was on. Check out my other podcast appearances. Y'all, if y'all, if you <laughs> check, out, <laughs> check out my link tree for other not FCSC related shit. No, but I, I said this because um, I think this is how important this book is to me. And I want to pay this woman as much as I can. The first person from FCSC who DMs us, who says, I want to read this book. I will buy you a fucking audio version. I'll buy, I'll send, I'll ship a physical copy yeah, of your house. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, let's do this. I think the books that we've chosen are fucking incredible. I love Tana S.C. Coates. Um, also, HBO is coming out with a ton of LC codes between the world and me. Did you guys see that? They're coming out with like a live um, reading with actors and shit. But it's gonna be incredible. Wow. But, hey, um, Josh, yeah. I'm just gonna. I just need to interrupt and say this. I think yeah, the the offer should be Josh Bice will sign and uh, give you a private message inside his copy of Minor Feelings, and that's what <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's like, so. Yeah, that's, it's that's, a double dedication. Yeah. yeah, but if, if anyone's in, into it, first person to just hit me up, hit FCFC up, I will get you the fucking book. I think this is fucking important for everyone to read. And um, yeah, I loved it, man. It's such a, it's, it's, it's powerful, dude. I'm, I'm excited to see what we got next. But for now, I'm just buzzing. I'm buzzing how, how uh, that this book exists.
and a little precursor into next uh, our next AC, book club book. Yeah, let AC let AC introduce it. Uh, so, if you don't know who Bobby Hundreds is, you're probably living under a rock. But uh, this is not a T-shirt by Bobby Hundreds. is such an important book for so many Oof. different reasons. Um, honestly, I read this book at a really, really, really shitty time in my life where I was like, I don't know if I want to do this shit anymore in terms of like graphic design, in terms of like feeling like I wasn't really like good enough to do it. And this book like single-handedly got me out of that rut. Like it in itself, I think it's just a great story about the successes and failures that come with, you know, just life in general. And in Bobby's version, just running a company for as long as he's done it. So um, yeah, it's a great book, Bobby Hundreds. Uh, definitely, um, de- this book definitely made me respect him so much more as a, as a person, as a business owner, um, and, and just his outlook on how longevity works. You know, I think it's a it's a very good read, and I'm really excited to unpack it and and really dive into it. Let's get Bobby on the pod, man. Don't we have a connect to him? All the with the LAFC shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should get him on here. That'd be sick. I'm sure he'd be super down to do it, but he's Edgar, gonna definitely drop a drop a collab with us first. Edgar Slim, any final feelings about uh, minor feelings? Um, I I kind of had one question, kind of like for everybody. I mean, uh, Josh had kind of touched on it uh, earlier, talking about how you know seeing the big contingent of. Uh, not just Koreans here in LA, but Asians in general is what made you want to move here. But like one thing that really um, stuck with me was in the beginning of the book where she really wanted to um, get that Korean therapist to be her therapist because she felt like they would have shared experiences, you know, and kind of like that idea of clinging to people, you know, off of something like um, ethnicity and, you know, having that thought in the back of your head that you're going to have like you're just going to connect with these people you'll have shared experiences like for me um you know growing up here in LA you grow up around like mainly like a lot of other Mexicans and you know Filipinos and like that was my contingent here in um (laughs) in Carson was uh, Mexicans Filipinos like Samoans black people and like that was it that's what I knew and then at a high school I went to uh, Cal State Fullerton and it was like a ton of white people and it was like a big ass fucking culture shock to me. <laughs> and I just remember, thankfully, the um, the dude that lived, one of the dudes that lived uh, next door um, in the dorms was also Mexican. So like the two of us clung together like this, you know. So like I wanted to know if what uh, your guys' experiences were like that, if there ever was like a culture shock or like where you looked for other people to cling to because, you know, they were also Korean or even like um, with Latinx is it, it doesn't even have to be like, Oh, they're both Mexican. It's like, Oh, you know, any other like Brown person or <laughs> whatever, you kind of like cling to each other because you have that sort of shared background. It's like a fool. You look like me. pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> um, I think that, that as Asians from LA and like, I mean, Josh originally from Queens, then Jersey might be similar, but in LA and and Southern California in general, or in Cerritos actually was where I'm from. um, It was really diverse. So like, 
I mean, I, and I feel like this is kind of the story for everyone. I feel like up until you finish elementary school, it's all everyone's kicking it with everyone. But it's yeah. just something that happens once you hit middle school where it's just like, oh, it's, it's big, bad middle school. Like you got to you got to like for some reason, it seemed like in middle school, everyone just started congregating with their race. You know what I mean? So you saw I, I saw the Koreans and I was like, OK, like apparently I'm supposed to go kick it over there um you know and it's and you know it's like multi, a lot of asians like we had the filipinos we had the koreans we had the chinese people i feel like in my school like the korean and chinese people like didn't really fully get along um and then you know like you had the indian group and then the the jocks that's where you know the big white and black guys and brown guys are kicking it it just kind of like for some reason, maybe when you hit puberty, you're just like, oh, shit, like I got to, you know, go kick it with people that look like me. No, that's real, dude. Fuck. I, I never even thought about it like that, like when the transition to like middle school happens. But yeah, I mean, it's like I, I guess it's like kind of survivors just thing at first when you're at a new place and you just want to be familiar with with, uh, with people there. um, Yeah, and usually you go in to middle school, like, with a little bit of fear, I feel like, when it comes to... Sure, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, the big bad eighth graders, like, and, you know, like, the eighth graders will try you, like, you find someone that's trying to tax you or whatever, like, now you go get me a breakfast burrito today, and you're either going to be the guy that says, fuck off, or you're going to get the motherfucker your breakfast burrito, but if you have, once you're, you know, in the flow of things, and you have your crew, like you know it's either you guys might like knuckle up or like oh like one of one of the homies just happens to be their cousin so like you're not getting taxed anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah without getting all lovey-dovey peace on earth right like we say this all the time it's like lafc is like an adult fucking an adult version of like school sometimes you know where you have a shot of meeting new people for the first time when you reach a certain age and you meet a way different demographic of people you get to be friends with them like that shit doesn't really exist and when you're when you are a grown-ass person you know and the fact that you get a second chance at it and maybe like not you know like trying to buck the middle school aesthetic and like actually like go elementary school days where like we're all here in the same space like everyone's fucking different but let's just fucking hang out like that's I mean, with that, again, without being so fucking naive and without being so simple-minded about this shit, like, there, there's a lot of that, I think, at play, for real. Like, it's like, we hang out because we're in the same fucking lot, partying and drinking together, and we go watch the team together. And for the most part, like, everybody's hanging out with everybody, and it is more diverse than anything I've been a part of in my life. Yo, FCFC prom on the way. Yo, <laughs> shout out. Yeah, I've never, I, you know what's new, uh, what's what's new out here that I haven't been is uh, Sadie, Sadie Hawkins. Sadie Hawkins, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah FCFC boring. Sadie Hawkins, though. Let's do it. <laughs> fucking wild. Wait, did you guys have Sadie Hawkins? No, at the Line Hotel. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's not East Coast thing. I think that's the West Coast thing. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, 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 straight up. I heard about it, I was like, what the fuck? That's crazy. So, yeah. Sadie Let's flip Hawkins. those gender roles, that's baby. <laughs> anywhere else we going boys all right some chicken. this has been another episode of the cfc pod thank you for joining us goodbye nice fcfc fc 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 fc
FCFC, 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 FCFC.